0: Good morning to you, and Happy New Year. It is exciting to enter into new days with the Lord, to know that the one who is ordering the days loves us and has shown his mercy to us through Jesus Christ, if we believe on his name. It amazes me as a believer, how many people don't look forward to the new year. How many people that I've talked to have great apprehensions about what the new year brings and then I realize that if you don't know the Lord, it's a rather daunting thing, a new year, as we see all the concerns and troubles of our world. But the amazing thing is In the beginning of 2013, God is still good, and God is still great. Those two things have not diminished. And I was encouraging someone this week as we were sharing together about how in this new year, the same God who spoke the universe into existence and has managed to hold it together since then, the same God who took a barren couple, gave them a child, that had children, that produced a nation, that was drawn out of captivity, that became a kingdom, that gave birth to the Savior, who died for our sins, rose again, is now seated on the Father's right hand. That same God is the same today. And it's hard sometimes for us to grasp that because nothing else except for God is the same. I look in the mirror in the beginning of 2013 and I don't look like the beginning of 2012. Definitely don't look like the beginning of 2000. And I'm sure I'm not alone in making that observation. I was fixing a tap in my house this week that when it was installed was a wonderful tap but It wasn't wonderful anymore. It died because everything breaks down. It weakens, but God does not. We're in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5. You've been following along. So if you want to turn to chapter 5. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord and our God awesome, and glorious. There is none like you in the heavens above or on the earth below or under the earth. You alone are righteous. You alone are holy. There is none like you. You alone are everlasting. Lord, we praise you this morning. We thank you for the privilege of singing praises to your name. Lord, we thank you this morning in these new days that though we do not know what each moment will bring, you have already ordered them all. You have set your plans and they will not be thwarted. That you are able to accomplish all you have promised. And Lord, we praise you for that this morning. We praise you for your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, we praise you for Jesus Christ, that anyone who believes on his name can be forgiven of sin and made righteous. Lord, we praise you for your body, the church, of which we are a part, that spans the globe and has lasted 2,000 years. We praise you that your son is the head of it and your spirit empowers it. Lord we praise you for your word which you have given us through the inspiration of your spirit that you have protected it that you have preserved it and that we have it today and that through your spirit we can understand it. Lord now as we look into your word I pray that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear minds to understand and most of all hearts to be changed for your glory and yours alone in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, to do a a very quick recap, of course, we've been following the journey of Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem in their burden to rebuild the wall of the city. We've looked at how God laid this burden upon Nehemiah and when God places a burden on someone's heart, it's not released until you submit to it. We saw how God ordered the events to bring Nehemiah to Jerusalem with the resources needed to begin this huge project. And how Nehemiah rallied the people by telling them the need, but also telling them that God was in it. We looked at the challenges that the people had been facing, the challenges from without, the challenges from within, and how God, each time, has been delivering them as they cried out to the Lord in prayer. But now we come to an interesting spot in the narrative. Some have even gone so far as to say that this chapter is misplaced, that it doesn't belong where it is in the text. I believe that it's exactly where it's supposed to be. We've been hearing a lot about the threats and the challenges facing the people from, from their enemies outside. And suddenly we come to chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. if you've been following along, you may notice that all of a sudden we're not talking about wall building. We're not talking about sandalat, We're not talking about these others on the outside. We're not talking about being armed for battle. Suddenly we're talking about what one commentator has described as, as housekeeping issues. All of a sudden we find ourselves talking about economic problems among the people in Jerusalem. And there are several that are mentioned here. The first is there is a shortage of food in the, in the region. We're told that there's an issue with a famine and people are coming saying, look, we, we have families, we have, we have children, and it's getting harder and harder to afford to feed them. Some of you may be sitting here going, I can resonate with that. I've seen my grocery bill. But this is, is becoming an acute problem. And others are saying, look, In order to feed ourselves, we have to mortgage the land that we have. But once we mortgage it, then we lose control of it. So then we can't pay it off. So now we're getting in a worse situation. And those who have are taking advantage of those who do not. So that those who have resources, who have funds, are saying to those who do not look, tell you what, sign over your vineyard to me and I will give you money so you can feed your family. Some of us may think, well, that's the way economics works, isn't it? Except these are the children of Israel. The children of Israel who were called by God to support and to encourage one another, to never take advantage of one another. They were never to charge interest to one another. They were never to take over the property that was the inheritance of another. And this is what is happening. People can't even pay their taxes to the Persian king because they're in such a bad financial situation because of what their brothers and sisters are doing to them that they're having to sell their children into slavery. And as we'll see later in the text, some of them are having to sell their children to the Gentiles, to their Gentile neighbors to get enough money to appease what their fellow Jews are doing to them. As he said, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So he said, we can't even, because we've mortgaged our fields, what. Our fields produce automatically become the property of others, so we have no way of ever getting the income ever to free our children. Verse 6 When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. So, an important thing to remember among God's people is that there is such a thing as righteous anger. Sometimes we live in our day of political correctness where we have been told, oh no, you never get angry, you never get angry. And there's all kinds of instances where anger stirs from sin. And we are to stand against that. But there is such a thing as godly anger. As we read through the word of God, we see many instances where the Lord says that he is angry. Christ on the earth had times when he was angry. I heard someone once try to explain when Jesus cleansed the temple and he made the scourge and he was driving the people out that actually it was not as intense as some people may think it was. I think it was rather intense. I don't know, last time I envisioned somebody whipping people out of a room, it was a rather intense thing. I don't think it was sort of like a, oh please, please just, just scurry along, scurry along. When we understand God's view of sin and how abhorrent sin in every form and every type and every level is to a holy God, we begin to understand righteous anger. And in this moment, as Nehemiah hears the cries of the people, he is filled with righteous anger. Because you see, God is raising up his people And they are involved in doing a work. And it's not just a physical work of building a wall. It's a redeeming work of God's people as God is calling his people back to himself after their time in captivity. And here are the people taking advantage of one another. It's not that the the outsiders are taking advantage of the weak and the poor and the disenfranchised. It's... The people of God are taking advantage of one another. They are turning on one another. So Nehemiah, in his anger, pauses, though, in verse 7, and I pondered them in my mind. This is very important. In issues, when issues arise and they stir you with anger, this is something that we must do, and that's to stop and meditate on it. Why are you angry? Are you angry because it just happens to hit that particular side of your personality that ticks you off? Are you angry because something is in opposition to the holiness of God? I heard recently statistics are, of course, going up on the number of abortions which take place in the province of Nova Scotia. That should make you angry. That the creations of God are being mechanically and efficiently exterminated. That should make you angry. Not angry at the individuals who are in that situation, but angry that such a thing is allowed to happen. Nehemiah ponders this, and I imagine... Though in this instance it doesn't say it that there was much prayer that took place because what he does next is a big deal. And it's one of those things that probably in the church we like to dwell on the least. When Nehemiah was calling the people together to rally them, we love those speeches. You know, how can I rally my brothers and sisters in Christ to do what God's calling us to do? What's a good inspirational thing? We love that. And when he's he's encouraging the people, we love that. Keep on. The Lord is with us. We love that. This is the part we don't love. And then, accuse the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. There are times when God is working among his people to do a good work that it will be necessary for correction. There will be times when God will lay upon the heart of those who are following him to identify things that are wrong. Maybe one-on-one, maybe in the context of a group, it may be necessary for correction to happen. We, we come with a flesh. We were born with it. I'm not talking about the corporeal. I'm talking about our sin nature. And when we come to Christ, we receive a new nature. The old nature is still there and the old nature is at war with our new nature and there's times in my life when my new nature has not been doing so well my old nature has been waving the flag and there have been times where people have taken me aside and said what you're doing is not right because correction was needed And until we in the church are willing to give and receive correction, the church will struggle and move forward. Until we are willing to call something wrong that the Bible clearly says is wrong, not with pride, but with love and the desire to rebuild. Because Nehemiah is angry with the people because what they are doing is hurting them. And it's hurting the testimony of God among the Gentiles. And when he calls them to it, when he clearly lays out exactly what is taking place, you notice the reaction of the people. They were silent. Because there was nothing to say. Because see, God is at work in this. God is at work in their hearts. There's conviction happening. So I continued, what you are doing is not right shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And he poses the question to them. He says, shouldn't you live in such a way so that when your enemies, when our neighbors, when our people around us look at us, they have nothing to say against us. That when they look at us, they may hate us for who we are, but they cannot condemn our conduct. So often in the church, the things that we do in our flesh toward one another becomes the greatest obstacle to our spreading the gospel. In people that I have had the opportunity to begin to share the gospel with who immediately shut the door, most of the times they would recount an instance of Christians, and oftentimes it wasn't Christians who mistreated them, but Christians that they heard who mistreated Christians. Oh, what about the church down the road that, you know, has multiplied by division? Or what about this group or so-and-so? Or what about this thing? And, and they're full of them. And so Nehemiah is saying to them, said, so don't you realize that while you are doing what your neighbors do, because the Gentiles exacted usury. The Gentiles sold people into slavery. That was common practice, but not for God's people. God's people lived by a different standard, and Nehemiah is calling them back to that. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. Let the exacting of usury stop. Nehemiah says, look, I know that people have needs, and and our people are loaning people money, money too, but we're not using it to cripple them. We're not exacting interest. Someone needs money, we loan it to them, and when they're able, they pay it back, and we make sure they're able to pay it back. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. And also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. And the people's response, We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. That's kind of heavy. Nehemiah gathers the people together. The people have said that they will... Turn, they will repent, and Nehemiah says, look, I want you to understand, this is not a, I repent now, and then later I go back to doing the things the way I did it before. Repentance means a change in direction. So I'm just letting you know, this is, and basically he pronounces a curse, saying, if you go back and continue going the way you were before, toward the people of God. May God cast you out of his possession in the same way you're casting people out of their possessions. Shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I think that is one of the, one of the many great verses in this book. That after a hard time of correction, when Nehemiah has to step up and call the people together and correct them, those, the people in power and in influence, in leadership, they could have said, look, we're done with you. Who are you again? But because of the Holy Spirit at work in guiding Nehemiah in his correction and at work in the lives of the people he speaks to, they respond. They hear him. And the whole assembly says amen and praised the Lord. And people did as they promised. You know, one of the things that, that I've been seeing in, in my brief opportunities in different ministry context is the only thing harder than correction is to fail to correct. I have had the opportunity to to be present at the demise of a number of churches where the, the local body just ceased to exist and, and talked with those in leadership and such. And in almost every case, people could go back to issues that required correction that were ignored. They were, let, let, let's just let it go. Where's it going to go? Away. And it doesn't go away. And eventually things die. Because if it's not corrected, it becomes corrupted. But in this case, we see this beautiful picture where correction takes place and people respond and now the work can continue because as long as that was eating in the inside... How long do you think the people were going to be able to do the mission God had called them to? Because it was requiring sacrifice. Men were at work when they could have been doing field work. Men and women were doing things with the walls when they could have been working in their other industries. And they were making sacrifices to do this work God had called them to. But if they're attacking each other, it's going to break down. But correction was applied Righteous anger was displayed, repentance occurs, and the people praise the Lord. And then we get a little statement put in by Nehemiah later. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, A hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O my God for all I have done for these people. Nehemiah recounts, looking back after the events that we're reading about, said, my whole time I was governor, 12 years, he'll serve. He said, I never took what was my right to take from the people because they were our people. Basically, he received his salary from the Persian government and that was all that he lived on. Though it was his right to demand much more from the people, he wouldn't take it, because they were his people. He was a part of them in what God had called them to. What we see in this verse, in these verses is Nehemiah is fulfilling what God has called his people to. First of all, Nehemiah loves God. And second, he loves God's people. For we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and as Christ added, with all our mind and all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Nehemiah does this, and he teaches the people to do it also. There's also an important view in this, and the economic side of who we look after and I'm going to say this and make sure you catch all of it so you don't think me a, a hard-souled heretic. We are often concerned with the poor outside the body of Christ. And we are called to be concerned for the poor everywhere. But you know, when you read the work in the New Testament, you know who was first cared for was the poor within the body. And someone brought that to me a while back and, and challenged me in it. And I said, well, yeah, I, I suppose. And he said, well, how well are you aware of the needs within your body? And I said, well, I don't really think about it unless somebody comes up and bluntly says it. And he says, what is the result you get from ministering to the needs of the people outside the body who come looking for, for support? And I said, well, we have interesting conversations and he said, you know what? When we care for the needs of our brothers and sisters, people look at that and say, see how they love one another? How they care for one another? And they say, when you read the writings of the history of the early church, one of the things that drew many people to believers was the incredible way believers loved and cared for one another. Not for what they did to the community at large, but first of what they did for each other. Because then people say, what is it about this group? I want to know more about this group. But instead, it's like, oh, there's the group. We come there, and they'll give us food. And I know I have have a, a, I will call him my friend. He would come. I would tell you his name, but his name has changed four times in the seven years I knew him. And he would show up every couple months. First, he'd be surprised that I was still there, and then he'd have to remember which name he was using, and he would come needing financial support, help. And we would talk about spiritual things, and he would give me basic answers and how things needed to change his life, and then he would get financial help, and off he'd go. And then he'd come back again and get some help, and off he'd go. One time he came, and we actually had nothing to give him at that moment, and he became quite irate, saying it's the responsibility of the church to care for him. And I began to ask, "Well, actually, it's the responsibility of the church to care for the church, and then also to be a testimony to those in need." And here we see Nehemiah is talking about the people of God caring for one another, ministering and looking after one another. Because then, as the Gentiles around them see, why is it that they live differently? So I encourage you to be honest and open with with one another as far as needs and things I was once we were visiting a church and they had a little prayer time and one of the uh, uh, older lady in the church stood up and she said I need could somebody just pray for me I have a roof and it's, and it's leaking and I don't know how I'm going to get it fixed so somebody could you pray for me and it seemed like one of those normal kind of prayer requests and somebody said yeah I'll pray for that and, and so the person starts to pray and the person prays and then the guy stands up and says well you know I have, you know, so many bundles of shingles, I just did part of my roof, and I've got them in my garage. another guy says, well, if you've got that, uh, I and so-and-so could come over. And somebody said, well, I've got tar paper. And said, before, by the time they finished their prayer time, the need had already been met. The body went and looked after. And that afternoon, the lady got a roof fixed because the body cared for the body. And you know what the neighbors think. Oh, how, who are these guys fixing your roof? on Sunday afternoon. Oh, these are all, these are the people of part of my church. And they came over to fix your roof? Yeah. Why'd they do that? Why? Because they love me. See how they love one another. That's our side note. I would encourage you In whatever God is calling you to, and as I've been saying each time we've been together, to seek what burdens the Lord lays on your heart, what he's calling you into within your family contacts, your relationships, maybe within your work, within this local body of believers, whatever he's calling you to. If there are things that you know are not right, deal with them. Start first, of course, with yourself. If there are things that are not right. Yeah, I'm sorry, I hit you. I shouldn't have done that. It's not right. Yes, it's not right. <laughs> deal with them. If there's things that when you go to the Lord in prayer about your own heart, about your own attitude, about your own way of doing things, that if it were somebody else, it would anger you, then deal with that. Seek the Lord's correction in it. And if there are those around you whom you love and you know there's things that aren't right with them, then go to them in love and seek to offer correction because these things need to be dealt with so that the body can do what the body's called to do because God has work for us to do, great work for us to do. Someone said, I can't wait till the Lord comes back and I heard another brother say, well, have you? Have you? Witness to somebody today, because the Lord's just waiting until the fullness of people have been brought in, so you want the Lord to come back sooner, get out and witness to more people. Share how awesome the Lord is in his salvation through Jesus Christ, and then see what God does. I have to tell you one quick story, just as a year-beginning story. As you're looking at what God may be laying on your heart and how big it might be and how daunting it might be. Some of you may be familiar with a missionary in South America named Bruce Olson. Bruce Olson has probably one of the most unique stories as far as someone called into missions. Bruce Olson was 19 and he had come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and had just flipped his world upside down. Unfortunately, that's what it looked like for those people around him, family and such. They all thought that he'd gone weird. And he was so convicted that God was calling him into missions that at 19, he took what money he had and he flew down to uh, Columbia because he heard of a native group of people that didn't know the gospel. And he showed up and he went to the missionaries. He was told was in the area and said, Hi, I'm Bruce Olson and uh, I'm here to be a missionary. And they said... Who sent you? Holy Spirit, I guess. Um, Nobody. So what mission agency are you affiliated with? None. Who's supporting you? Uh, I I have enough money for, well, I uh, don't really have enough money for a plane ticket home. And uh, no one. And they told him, Bruce, go away. He's like, well, I can't go away because I'm supposed to be here. This is the burden God's given me and I can't go away. Well, the missionaries told him to go away. Ironically, there he was, somewhat homeless in South America, and he ran into a group of anarchists and communists, and they said, hey, come hang out with us. So he hung out with them and shared the gospel with them. And eventually, he figures out how to go and find this group of native people who were hostile to foreigners. So he goes in and he figures, well, I'll f- go, and God will find a way so that I can connect with these people. Well, they did. Um, as he's tra- trying to figure out where they are and wandering through the rainforest, one of them throws a spear into him and takes him home as a prize, where he gets infection, and he's laying in this village, and, yeah, it's, it would never be a recruiting tool for missions because everything that could go wrong goes wrong for him. Eventually, he does build a rapport with these people, but he can't seem to figure out how to share the gospel with them. And he's been there for a couple of years, and he's, he's understanding a bit of the language, but he's so frustrated, like, I've got no doors to share the gospel. God gave me this burden. I'm supposed to be here. I know I'm supposed to be here, but it's not making any sense. People at home are telling me I'm crazy. Everybody says I'm crazy. Well, one day, he's out with a group of people, the, the natives from this tribe, and someone had just died. And he's, he's talking to them because they're in such grief about this person who's just died, and he's trying to understand a bit about where they're coming from. They said, well, we don't know what's happening to his spirit. We don't know if it's lost in the ground or it's up in the sky. It's just lost, and that the worst thing, is just to be lost. He said, well, well why do you think that way? And, and one of the fellows says, well, we have a story that we've passed down through our people, and the story says that Way back in the beginning of all things, the creator of all things made a trail for us that we walked down. But one day, those who came before met one who deceived them and told them there was a better trail to walk. And so we stepped off the creator's trail onto our own trail. And now we can never find our, the creator's trail. And all our desire is to find our creator's trail because if you're not on the creator's trail, when your spirit leaves your body, then you simply are lost but our ancestors know that there's no way for us to find the creator's trail. We can't find it. So he said the ta- only the one who gives us the talking banana leaves can show us how to find the creator's trail. And he goes, "Okay, I was doing well till you came to the talking banana leaves." And one of, one of his friends takes this machete and goes over to this banana tree and whacks out a chunk of it and pulls it out and lays it down and slices it and then goes like this and the inner layers of the stalk of the tree all fold out. And as Bruce Olson is looking at it, stare on the trail in the rainforest, said suddenly this piece of tree looks like an open book. And for the first time now in several years, reaches into his backpack, pulls out his little Bible, which nobody's had any interest in, and he's not even tried to show them because they don't even know how to read or anything like this. And he goes, I have the talking banana leaves and drops his Bible open. And he says, this is the story of your creator and his trail. In this story, it tells you when you went off the trail, and it tells you how the creator's son has made the path back to his trail. And all of a sudden, after several years of no communication, all these guys sit around him, and they say, tell us the story. And so he tells them the story, and they get so excited about it, they go, that is it! And they accept Christ in that moment, in the rainforest. And then they go back to their village and they build these big long houses with hammocks and they love storytelling. Well, one of the fellows who hears this story stands in his hammock and starts swinging, which is a tradition they do, and all the people gather around, to get in their hammocks, and this guy sings the entire gospel story that he's just learned from creation through the fall to the coming of Christ to his death and resurrection, and how this can give eternal life in Christ, and he sings it all for several hours to all these people who then begin to sing it back, which is their way of accepting it too. and Within months, the entire tribe is changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God was in it. It was God's burden. So if God's given you a burden, no matter what context that it's in, no matter how huge, impossible, or difficult it looks, God is able to do it. There are all kinds of stories like that. I encourage you, if you don't read about Christian history, read about Christian history. Don't read what's happening in missions. Read about it. The story of the man who was in Peru was trying to witness to this guerrilla group and no way he could get close to them. And then one day, while he's simply walking through the city, a car bomb goes off. The army arrives and arrests the people around, assuming that they're somehow involved in it. He gets one of the people who gets arrested, and he's like, Oh no, how can this happen to me? Now I've been arrested. And they take him and they throw him in prison, in a maximum security prison filled with the rebels that he has been trying for years to get in contact with to present the gospel. Now he's locked up with them for an indefinite period of time. He saw a lot of them saved in that time. He said, God was perfect. Gave me an absolute captive audience. Not one of them could leave. Every day, I'm going to talk to you about the gospel again. The walls are there. You've got no place to go. Most of us would look and say, being thrown in prison doesn't sound like a, a great opportunity. But it is. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we've looked into your word, we've seen the the challenge of correction. When we as people get off track, when we look to our own selves, our own desires, our own needs, our own flesh, Lord, we see how Nehemiah was moved by you in righteous anger to call the people back. And Lord, how through your spirit at work the people responded. They turned back To care for one another, to be able to do the work that God had called them to do. Lord, I think of that in each of our lives, individually and corporately. Lord, there are times when we get off track. Lord, call us back. Lord, use us as is necessary to correct one another in love. Seeking only to see the restoration of our brothers and sisters, the encouragement, the strengthening of one another. Lord, and as we look at this whole picture of Nehemiah, that we would remember that the same God who is moving He and the people is the same God who is at work in every believer in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us go into these days for as long as You should tarry, with an excitement of knowing that You are able to do great things, and you desire for us to be a part of that, to bring glory to your name and to further the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray your blessing upon my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name, amen.